all these all these New York folks that I need to go and visit more often. <laughs> I was just I was just in New York like a couple of weeks ago. You I, were in New York for like twelve hours, and we I played. Was, okay, I was in New York City for twelve hours. I was in the state of New York for three days. Okay, oh. he yeah. was he came back from out of town, stopped by my apartment. We drank half a bottle of Pinhook bourbon and played Mario Party. Awesome. It was great. Awesome. <laughs> We did not. We did not leave the apartment. That's great. I was very, I, I was very tired, and that was exactly what I needed. And then I drove yeah. across the entire state, um, which to, to Buffalo. Yeah, which New York, beautiful, beautiful state. But twenty, no, sorry, two hundred miles on Highway eighty, like I eighty. I'm like, oh gosh, like I'm just, I'm gonna go jump off a mountaintop because at this point, I'm just like losing my mind. <laughs> uh, but it's beautiful, beautiful country. Like, yeah, I, I love driving through New York. Uh, I did. Uh, I did ten hours from Virginia back to Long Island because uh, I was at AuthorCon two weekends ago. Oh, how was that? It was cool. It, you know, I mostly went to see friends and like meet some mm-hmm. other people face to face that I never met before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was on a panel. I was on a cosmic horror panel with uh, mm-hmm. Mary San Giovanni, which was awesome because it's like a huge honor to meet her face to face. But um, it was a lot of fun. It was cool. And, uh, a lot of really cool people. Um, I think like, you know, these are people like you talk to on Twitter and stuff and like in the DMS and all that, but like meeting them face to face, just like you kind of just picked up, you know, like, and we ended up having, we had a great time. We were smoking cigars and then we we're pounding drinks and I got, I'll tell this story. <laughs> <laughs> I got, uh, they didn't have good old fashions at the hotel bar. So I was like, well, let's do Cosmos all night. It's been a long time since I've had a good Cosmo. Let's do Cosmos. Yeah, I see Nathan's face. Is, uh, old it, move. Old I'm more move. like, if they don't make a good old fashioned, I do not trust them to make a Cosmo, but. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I was drinking Cosmos uh, all night with like Amanda Headley and Steve from Steve Talks Books and stuff and just getting annihilated. So much so that the always delightful and super sweet Todd Kiesling and C.W. Breyer both had to escort me to the room. They were both carrying me, basically. <laughs> but I found out the next day they were like, you are the the sweetest drunk and you're so happy. And, and I was like, oh, all right, good. I was like, that's good. <laughs> that's the... That's a gamble that I don't know if I'd take at a at a convention unless I knew a lot of people there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the last the last time That's... I did that, I ended up playing soccer at six in the morning with a bunch of bunch of folks out back of a college. Love um, it. Yeah, it was it was definitely a gamble, but it was worth it. But I knew a lot of people beforehand. But yeah, props to you, sir, on being the sweetest drunk they had ever met. <laughs> It was just really, I was just like really feeling the vibe, you know, like I, I, we were just having such a good time. Like Red Legault was there, like I never met her before. And she's just like a ray of sunshine, super sweet, Laurel Hightower, same thing. It was just a great time, like just really cool vibes and cool people and beautiful hotel. Like one of the, one of the like nicest, like chain hotels I've ever been in. It was really lovely. You know, I, it was so funny because I was seeing on my Twitter, all these authors that I follow and like some of them I've interacted with, obviously through the podcast or through whatever, and just everyone talking about AuthorCon. And then on TikTok, I kept seeing all these people going to AuthorCon as fans. And Sina Paleo's book has been like getting more attention on TikTok following yeah. AuthorCon now. And I'm like, 
this is so funny that these two worlds are merging <laughs> and I and it's been really funny because I'm like oh yeah we like interviewed her on our podcast and people are like wait what where do, where do I find it where do I find it like, yes. <laughs> that's maybe, awesome maybe something will happen when we go to BoucherCon in uh yes. in August but I'm so excited to meet people in person for that but this is about you so. and, oh, work yes. and everything else. So should we should we get the show on the road? Let's get it going. Oh. Hello, and welcome back to another episode and a new season of Dark Waters, a literary podcast devoted to dark fiction and those who love to read and write it. I'm Kirsten, here as always with Nate. Hello there. And our guest for this episode, Robert Otone. <laughs> Hi. Hello. Robert P. Otone is the Bram Stoker Award-nominated author of The Triangle. His other works include Her Infernal Name and Other Nightmares, an honorable mention in The Best Horror of the Year, Volume 13, as well as the suburban folk horror novel The Vile Thing We Created. His short stories have appeared in various anthologies as well as online. He's also the publisher and owner of Spooky House Press. He can be found online at spookyhousepress.com or on Twitter slash Instagram at Robert Otone. We will link all of this in the show notes. He delights in the creepy and views bagels solely as a cream cheese delivery device. And as a personal note, I have had this the best time with you in HWA and just constantly thank you for all of the support and all of the help as we've been going down. Thank you. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add or that you'd like our listeners to know? Uh, no. <laughs> kind of... That's kind of everything. I, you know, I have, um, you know, the vile thing we created is coming out soonish because we're re-recording this actually a week before it comes out, so that's mm -hmm. cool. Um, but yeah, I have some other stuff on the horizon with Weird House Press and uh, Cemetery Gates, and uh, just really excited for those things too. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's about everything. Hmm. All right then. Well. Um... Yeah, we want to talk to you about the vile thing we created, which I, I love that title, by the way. Um, <laughs> That's pretty great. The cover is <laughs> awesome, too. Um, Thank you. Given the uh, the subject matter of the book, which I was I was reading earlier, this I was reading about like four o'clock in the morning because I, I can't sleep. Um, and that was good to keep awake, uh, <laughs> which the book, <laughs> the book should be released by the time this episode drops. Um, but we want to ask you a few questions to help our listeners uh, get to know you a bit better. So because this is what we do, mm -hmm. what do you normally classify under the header of quote unquote dark fiction? Why do you love it? And what are you specifically looking for when you're looking for a new book in that genre? I think um, what I like most about dark fiction is the ability to to sort of approach subject matter that might be difficult um, for a more general audience. Uh, you could do it through the lens of, uh, you know, dark fiction or weird fiction or spooky fiction, whatever you want to say. And usually it goes down a little easier. Um, you know, you could look at something like, you know, movies certainly do this a lot. Like you look at Get Out, um, which is obviously about institutional racism, but guess what? It's a horror movie. So like everybody digs it, whether they pick up on, I mean, it's kind of on the nose that that's what it's about. But, you know, for Joe Schmo in the Midwest, who doesn't know that, I just knocked the whole Midwest. Everybody in the Midwest hates me now. Um like, I don't think they're capable. The Midwest is too nice. They'll just like <laughs> not make you the good version of their cookies. Yeah, they they just they 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 won't like stop by your house with the hot dish or the casserole or you know insert your random random <laughs> random dish here. You know, I heard the term hot dish for the first time a few years ago, and I did not understand what that was. It took me uh, a bit to get it too. Yeah, 
Yeah, it was weird. I heard it in a video game. I heard it in the Walking Dead video game. This guy was like, it's oh. hot dish night. And I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> what? Like, I, it's like, talk normal. Um, But yeah, anyway. So yeah, I think it, that's, that's the thing that li- I like about it. But in terms of what I look for, I'm always trying to... I was just thinking about this too, that I, I don't really read a lot of the things that are like trending. You mentioned like TikTok, books popping off on TikTok and stuff like that. I don't look at those as much. Like my friend John is really good for that stuff. Like he stays on the pulse of like what's hot and he buys everything. Um, and then I usually get it like six months later. You know, he's always like, oh, I read that. Yeah. Do you want to, do you want it? And I'm like, yes. Um, but I'm always on the lookout for stuff from people that either I know or people that I think have something really interesting to say. Um there was a book that I got as part of the Stoker thing. Uh, I can't remember what her, her name is Isolt. Her first name is Isolt. And um, it was this amazing book about struggling with your weight, but it was presented in the way of, uh, I think it's called All of Me. I think it's mm. called All of Me. And uh, Isolt Murphy, I think is her name. And it's about this woman struggling with her weight who tries something very experimental and how horrifyingly bad it goes. It's straight up body horror. And it was so goddamn good. And I was like, how is this not getting more attention? So like, and I'm not trying to be like a horror hipster and be like, oh, I like what people aren't talking about. But I I do like sort of the things that like jump out to me and, and the things that specifically like, tickle my fancy like if you give me anything by lee murray i'm gonna read it because i love lee murray's stuff mike seidlinger and you know the sort of the transgressive writer charlene elsby um people like that i'll always actively seek out their stuff um and then i always come you know then there's always like like the bigger names like john langan and and you know paul tremblay like i'll pick up their stuff right away too but like the stuff that's always trending I don't always get to like right away and I feel bad because like those they're all nice people. I just don't get to it like when it's in the like consciousness or whatever. I always come to it after. Yeah, I get that. It's kind of funny. I think I read my first like new release, new release, like popular book, like not that like this week. And I was like, man, I wish I would have waited because I might have skipped it. But not because there was nothing wrong with the book. It was a perfectly fine book. It was not a book I, if I'd read a few more reviews, I would have known I would enjoy. Like hmm. I, I knew that that was one that like is for us a different audience. You know what I mean? So sometimes it's better to like kind of wait and hear and like kind of gauge the reaction to be like, okay, someone spoil it enough for me. Right. So I know. I, I feel bad too sometimes when when something is sitting on my shelf for a really long time. Like, I'll, I'll just be honest, like I'm looking at my shelf right now and I have a book um, on there called Stonefish. And the, the author is a really nice guy, I suppose. I've never really talked to him, but I've had it on the shelf. I, I, I'm excited to read it, but we're coming up on the time of the year where I reread The Fisherman. Mm-hmm. So I'm probably going to reread The Fisherman for like the sixth time before I get to Stonefish for the first time. And I feel bad about that. But at the same time, it's like, I'm sorry, but <laughs> The Fisherman's like the greatest horror novel in 40 years of literature. So like, can't help you, man, you know, or like, I'll grab The Legend of Sleepy Hollow again before I read, you know, The Chill by Scott Carson. Like, I just I, I don't know, like, I don't know what it is. 
And it's not even that like idea of like comfort food horror because like I don't I don't believe in that kind of thing. Like oh I go to it because it's so comfortable. Like mm, no, <laughs> but it's just sometimes you just want that story again and you want to live in that place not out of comfort but maybe you find something else in it for me that's the legend of sleepy hollow because like i just i want to live in that world so much and i want to be as entrenched in that as humanly possible i'm working on something now that has very strong ties to the legend of sleepy hollow so i've reread it three times in the past two weeks and it just doesn't it doesn't lose its magic. And I think the fisherman is the same kind of thing. So what I'm saying is I'm stupid because stonefish could very well have that magic in there too. I just don't know because I keep passing by it, Uh, but I did throw money at it. So the author can't get mad, I guess. I feel like that's a part of it, right? Like if you, it's like, I gave you the money I promise the review will come. Yeah. At some point. That happened at AuthorCon because I, I, you know, I, I bought books from all the people that I knew and like friends and stuff like that because I, I made a point to bring a bunch of books, mm-hmm. but I also knew I wanted to buy a bunch of books too. Mm-hmm. And then like on the last day, I was just futzing around. I was walking, whatever. And like, I'm a sucker. And it was like the one nice like thing, I guess, is like I'm such a sucker for people like drawing me into their booth. It's like a magnet. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And this one dude just pulled me in. I was like, fuck. I know I'm going to end up buying this guy's book. And... <laughs> He was just talking to me and everything. He was a super nice guy, friendly, whatever. And I bought his book and I'm excited to read it. But like, when am I going to get to it? I don't know. Um, but I'm glad I bought it. And I'm glad to support like any author that's cool. Um, and most of them are cool. So I'm happy to throw money at people. Fair enough. Yeah. It's um... always, I, I try to be on top of things as best I can just to be able to kind of strike while the iron's hot. But I have the exact same problem, which is that things get in the way i i never get around to it or it's there are certain books that i go back to and i reread just because i'm at a place in my life where i know there's going to be something there for me like until i until i gave it to a very close friend of mine who um is was in recovery now he's now he's like very much on the other side of it um yeah he uh i gave him my collection of raymond carver poems uh, but that is literally a book that I had beat to shit because I had just kept reading it and rereading it and rereading it because there was so much I could keep drawing out of it. Um, but it kept me from like reading other books of poetry that I knew I had meant to get to or like new books of like short stories that I kept meaning to get to. And it's like, and I was actually like, now that you mentioned that I need to reread The Fisherman because, oh gosh, I love that book so much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but see, like what you did is great because like I... I've never had a positive experience with sharing a book with someone before. Like I, my favorite book of all time is less than zero by Brady Sinellis. So I shared that with my, my friend Lewis, who's like one of my closest friends and he hated it. And I was devastated. Cause I was like, this is my favorite book. Like this is the book when I read when I was in eighth grade that made me want to write. Like, how could you do this to me? And he's like, yeah, I fucking hated it. It sucks. Brady Sinella sucks. And I'm like, fuck you. That's <laughs> so funny. I remember um, on, it was another, it was the episode we did with Jack Moody. And I recommended Don DeLillo. And I love Don DeLillo. And we did, we like, Nate and I did an episode talking about Cosmopolis. And if you see my book of Cosmopolis, it is beat to hell somehow like chunks of the cover are missing not even sure how that happened I have another Delilah book that like the entire cover fell off um 
and Jack was like I didn't like Don DeLillo like at all and I'm like I have a Don DeLillo inspired tattoo like you can't like I respect (laughs) you but also this hurts my soul (laughs) my um my copy of House of Leaves is like that some of the pages have like started to tear away there's like that one insert in the at the very beginning that's completely ripped out so like yeah I've gotten some beaten up books my I have um like four copies of less than zero signed by Ellis so like they're all perfectly preserved even my one that's dog-eared I had him sign for me because I was like uh sir this is the one I bought when I was in eighth grade (laughs) that's amazing And, and I took um I took a picture with him and I made the mistake of putting my hand on his lower back. I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I did that. And he looks pissed. And I have it up on my shelf up there. He does not look happy. Um, I don't know why I did it. I regret it. Just like, mm-mm-mm. yeah. Um, being <laughs> a love dark fiction, obviously, but everything in life needs balance in theory. What was the last book you read or worked on or are working on that left you with positive or hopeful or at least somewhat optimistic feelings about the world? Uh, probably The Triangle, um, even though it is uh, dystopian. Um, you know, I I specifically wanted to write that book to give my niece and nephew, specifically my niece, uh, who the main character is named after, someone that like maybe she could see a little bit of herself in because uh, my niece is very much like a tomboy and she's very um you know just adventurous she gets dirty uh she's a fun like outdoorsy type kid loves to mix it up and that's how i wanted um aslan in the book to be and so when i finished that first book and the second one as well the second one ends on kind of a down note it's like my empire strikes back type book but the first one um has an ending that that is i think pretty hopeful and um the third one will also have, I mean, no spoilers or anything, but the third one's going to have um, some very dark themes in it. But I think the ending will be up to interpretation for people, whether it's a hopeful uh, one or not. Um, but I think, yeah, probably the triangle. I'm I'm working on a middle grade novel right now um, that I mentioned has like strong ties to Sleepy Hollow and that I'm just enjoying writing the kids so much in that like they're ridiculous and it's just like i don't know where they came out of me from but like it is fun as hell to write every moment that these kids are like interacting with each other so there's a lot of hope there i guess too because it's it's really about kids kind of finding their love of their finding a love of place through you know a piece of fiction that's hundreds of years old and uh you know sort of the how that comes back to kind of haunt them sort of thing that's really cool i actually like yeah i coming out of this is like i kind of admire that you're able to kind of draw aspects of like people in your life into your work a little bit more because that's something i struggle with because Mm -hmm. i never want to like see my characters too much in reality because I don't want them to read the piece and then just be like, oh yeah, that's based on me, isn't it? And I'm like, no, it's not, not at all. No. <laughs> this uh person who occasionally, you know, kills people is not based on you at all. Um <laughs> shifty eyes, shifty eyes, shifty eyes. 
I had um I had a funny thing happen the other day. Um, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Zingo. Um, I forget, who the hell was I talking? Oh, it was um, I did a podcast the other day, and the guy had read. I sent them, you know, in advance of the uh the vile thing we created, and the guy uh who was interviewing me was like, "Yeah, there's a character in there named Josh. Is that based on somebody?" And I was like, yeah. And he was like, oh, he's going to know. And so he planted it in my head. So now, like, when my friend buys the book and reads it, he's going to know that this character is very much inspired by him. And then I'm going to be fucked. <laughs> because... That's funny. Yeah. And there was um, a lot. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Oh, no, no, no. Go for it. I, um, you know, there's a lot of things that happened to friends of mine. Um you know, in their pregnancies and stuff that I put into the book also. So, but like at the same time, like I had specifically talked to their wives about these things. So they kind of knew, um, but one, actually the guy who Josh is based on his wife had a lot of difficulties during pregnancy. And I, I put some of the stories that he told me, some of the things I, you know, massaged and changed a little bit, but those things kind of lingered with me. And I, cause like, you know, um, I don't have kids. My wife and I don't have kids. Um, and I was just like in the dark in terms of like how difficult it can be to have children. So like hearing these stories, I was like, Jesus. And like, and the, the best thing about it is like, I had already, I had already and always believed that women were superior to men in every way, but in learning about childbirth and pregnancy, I was like, yeah, <laughs> like that shit's reinforced. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> like in every fathomable way, it's every, just such a nightmare. Every every time I've every time I've spoken with one of my friends who has had kids, particularly the women, um, I'm friends with a lot of mothers, which is unexpected for what I was thinking of at my age. Um, <laughs> but it's it's a weird thing. Um, but every single time I've spoken with them about like what pregnancy was like, or what childbirth was like, or even talking, um, my so uh, my niece was born about six, I don't know, I don't know, uh, about seven months ago, something like that. Mm. It should be seven months tomorrow. Nice. Uh, but my, yeah, she's absolutely gorgeous, like absolute doll of a of a child, like sweet as can be. Uh, but when I was talking with my brother about what it was like when she was born, he was like, dude, like I could never uh one i could never two he said like it was the result like it resulted in like the most terrifying minute of my life because there was a second where she was born and she wasn't breathing mm -hmm. and he was like oh my gosh like is this is this where it all like comes crashing down and she she got her breath going and everything was fine but i was like dude like could, could you ever do that again he's like no no like absolutely like i i, I never want to have that kind of scare again um and i'm just kind of like yeah my my sister-in-law is an absolute beast for giving birth to her daughter and like all my friends and i'm just kind of like i don't know if i ever want to put someone in this i have us. known for years and years i do not ever want to have children i love reading stories like this and love like not experiencing it myself and just like you know it's fine like i i appreciate and it was so funny because i was hanging out with uh, a bunch of my friend group from when I was younger and into college, all got married fairly young. 
couple of them got married like fairly recently, but a lot of them got married early 20s and started to have these conversations like, oh, yeah, well, we're when we have children. And my head had to flip the switch because it's not the, um, you know, like when you're younger and you're like, oh, shit, like, what am I going to do? It's that I had to flip the switch of like, okay, how are we going to like game plan? We have a, oh, wait, no, this is on purpose you're choosing to do this we are at the okay cool different different mentality (laughs) (laughs) it it took me a second and this happened like three times in a row where i had to like Mm. check myself of being like no they sound happy and that they're planning on having children not a mistake okay cool he he didn't slip one past the goalie okay cool (laughs) for for us it was for for me and some of my friends it was different because it was like they were like they they had always wanted uh, a lot of my a lot of my friends who were very Catholic they had wanted children um, like this had never been something that they had like they had always wanted to be parents um, but then we caught the other end of the spectrum which is that people were expecting them to have kids and they thought that they were intentionally putting it off mm. or refusing mm. to have kids and then the judgment came of like oh why aren't you like why aren't you pregnant why don't you have kids already it's like well because they were having trouble you dingbat right um i hate that this conversation is allowed to happen like we would never like i keep seeing all these flipped videos right if if we talk to ch- people who have children the mm-hmm. way we talk to people who don't have children right mm-hmm. and just being like oh like you know, if you change your mind, there's, there's, um, there's firehouses, there's, um, you know, there's things that you can, oh, okay. Yes. We have like a support group planned for this type of thing, right? Like you would never have those conversations with some, like, I just, I hate that that's a normal thing in society is to be like, A, like how weird is that of an announcement to be like, we're planning on starting to have unprotected sex. Yeah. It's like, oh, cool. Congratulations. Okay. Um, like I assumed because you're married, that was already (laughs) happening. And then, well, it's also that, but then it's like, why is it, why aren't you procreating? Like, why, why have you chosen not to procreate? Why have you chosen not to like resign the next 18 years of your life to, to 18? We're in New York. Yeah. A lot longer than that. Yeah. That's fair. At least 18 years of your life. Plus all the financial burdens for at least another decade on top of that. Like, yeah that was that was the thing for me and the wife was like the the financial part was a huge part of it like not for nothing like i'd rather buy blink 182 tickets than diapers i don't don't know um but like you know i don't want to lose any of my freedom you know Mm -hmm. like we're finally in a place like we're potentially buying a house in you know a year or so like i want to spend time planning a garden I want that house to look exactly how my wife wants it to, you know, like I want these things for her. Like, I don't want to baby proof anything. I like nice things, you know, like I, I I don't, I don't want to not, I don't want to see like a $600 bottle of wine and say, well, I can't do it. I got to pay for this fucking kid to do whatever. It's like, no, I'm going to buy that bottle of wine and enjoy the shit out of it in a year. Like, like if there's an emergency with the kiddo and then you're suddenly like have to be somewhere and you now you're like you opened a six hundred dollar bottle of wine. Yeah. I'd, I'd I'd throw myself off a bridge. I'd be so disappointed. But like and I know that's like but also like this goes back to the idea of like I see these things in myself, like I know that I'm a selfish person. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like and I'm mm-hmm. not 
and I'm not saying that to be like, oh, I'm so selfish and like edgy or anything like that. But it's like I acknowledge these things about myself. Also, when my dad passed away in 2019, that's really when I had I no longer had interest in being a dad because I had a great dad. And, you know, I hope everybody out there did. I could never be as good as him. I just know that I couldn't. And I don't want to try and do something that I know that I'm not going to be as good as my dad at, you know, like I just it's not a possibility. So, like, I don't you know, it's it's, it's you know, it's folly to me to even try um, because he set the bar really high and um, I wouldn't even want to attempt it. And, you know, like I, I was going to I don't mind saying this on the show. I was going to get a vasectomy this year. Um, I've got some other health issues that are coming, um, before that I have, um, a shoulder issue from having COVID in 2020. I have no cartilage in my left knee. So like a total knee replacements in my future, it's like a whole thing. So I'm like, well, I'll put off that surgery to get these other two things taken care of first. <laughs> but you know, like if, if we're lucky enough in the future to be in a place financially to adopt a kid you know, I'm not against that. I'm really not. You know, I don't I, my wife would be an amazing mom. I would probably be a not great dad because like I don't want to run around outside. I was an indoor kid growing up. I played sports. This is the weird thing. I played sports, but I was an indoor kid growing up and a monster kid growing up. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, my wife, she also played sports. She's an outdoorsy person. Like, cool. Have fun. Take the kid to soccer. I'm going to be banging out this novel. Like, I don't know what to tell you. So, but again, like I, I'm thankful that I know these things about myself at least. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is a fantastic conversation. But just to move on, yes. Uh, can you recall what was the first story you had published, and what inspired you to write it? Yeah, uh, the first story I ever had published was, oh man, it was in a, a local uh, thing. It was in a um like a Manhattan horror magazine. Um, and I don't even remember the name of it, but like the story itself was in my second collection. It was the only story that had been published previously. And I don't remember the name of it. And I remember the feeling was, oh, cool. I got published in something. And like, I made a little money from the sale of the story, which was cool. And uh, I was just really excited. I, I just I remember feeling excited. I was like, wow, I, I can sell stories. That's neat. And um, then I, I hit like a stride where like I was in a lot of anthologies, like right around the time my second collection came out. I just happened to be like, he's in this anthology and then this one and then this one and on this website and whatever. And then I just kind of started focusing on longer fiction after that. And like I've written a couple short stories Um one that just got a, a really kind rejection. <laughs> so I was like, all right, that's cool. Um, but yeah, no, I, I remember that first one and it was really, it was really cool to see happen. And I was really proud of it and really happy about it. And uh, I'm still really happy about it. It's probably still on their website. I just don't remember the name of it. I, I think I speak for most people to say you live the dream and your first thing you got paid for. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> that's a cool thing to think yeah. about i never th i've never thought of it like that until now yeah pretty good win pretty good win 
Could you tell us a little bit about your writing habits? Is there something that you need to do before you begin writing or while you're working that lets you stay focused and like really dig into the material? Yeah, Um, I really like writing first thing in the morning. I don't like writing at night unless my wife is not here um, because I like to spend time with her in the evening and relax and stuff. But um, I do like to write first thing in the morning. I'll get uh, a cup of iced coffee, a nice tall glass of iced coffee, probably in my Washington Irving glass that I have, pint glass. Um, And then uh, I'll, I'll have a little breakfast, usually like a protein shake or something, and then I'll get to it and... If I'm uninterrupted, I'm good for 1,300 to 5,000 words a day. Um, The longest stretch I ever had was 12,000 words. or It was either 12,000 or 20,000. I don't remember. In one day. In a day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote a 6,000-word story in an hour once. That was really cool. An hour? Yeah, and it got published. (laughs) It was in uh, an anthology about uh, Winnie the Pooh. Uh, horror Winnie the Pooh horror. Yeah. Yeah. Tiger in the Hundred Acre Wood and like methamphetamines and well, I they wish. turned that into a movie. They turned Winnie the Pooh into a horror movie. They did. We did it first. Our anthology was first. It's all it's all cosmic uh Lovecraftian Winnie the it's the call of Puthulu is the oh anthology my God. name. Yeah. I I need to find. I'm not this going to support I... that. I'm sorry. I that 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 story. I'm going to skip. Um, I I grew up with Winnie the Pooh. I had all of the 100 acre wood stuffed animals. I was also an indoor kid, but I was also a stuffed animal kid. Yeah. And I I'm going to let my memory of Winnie the Pooh stay untainted. That's but totally. They look it up. <laughs> yeah, I I'm just I'm honestly just curious because Winnie the Pooh is like, I mean. From my understanding, it was how A.A. A. Milne, the World War One vet, dealt in part with his PTSD. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm like, cosmic horror seems to fit just fine. Yeah. And my also, story in particular uh, yeah. specifically goes into a little bit more on the nose with the World War One PTSD stuff than some of the other stories in the anthology. All the anthology stories are fantastic. Like... Mm-hmm. I'm super honored to be in that anthology with people that I genuinely admire. Uh, Christine Morgan is in there. Um, it's just really, it's uh, it's really crazy the, to be in that table of contents. Pete Rollick is in there. Um, but, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm like really enthusiastic about it. But it's like, my story has like a hopeful uh, bend to it. It's not a... Um, you know, it's not all terror all the time kind of thing. And And really like, I think a lot of the authors in that anthology went into it with a lot of love for Winnie the Pooh. So it was cool. It was fun to write. That's fair. Yeah. Speaking of uh, odd extensions of uh, literary skill. Your segues are on point today. I, I, I was riding a small scooter, so I'm like very much in the segue mode. Um, That was good. That was really good. <laughs> when I get her to take off her headphones, that's when I know I've won. Um, <laughs> it, it brings joy to my dark, dreary soul. Um, <laughs> if you could expand out your repertoire beyond what you've already done, what type of genre would you want to work in? An example, it could be poetry, plays, graphic novels, and why would you want to work in that genre? Yeah, I would love to go into uh, comic books and graphic novels. That's... um. 
sort of the dream. Um, I would really, really enjoy that. I'm a huge DC Comics guy. Nothing would make me happier in this lifetime than to write um, something for DC at some point. Like that would that would be so like, you know, everybody always has like, oh, this is the dream market that I want to get into or like the dream publisher. Like, I don't really give a shit about that. Like if I could write something for DC, then I would be happy. That would that would be like, I'm good. Like I've I've done everything that I've wanted to do. That's awesome. <clears throat> but um, I, I've written plays. I'm actually working on a piece for the stage right now. Um, it's very early, early uh, goings, but it's it's going to be very performative. And it's going to be it's something that I'm really excited about because it hasn't been done since like the 17, 1800s. So I'm working with my former um, uh, playwriting and screenwriting professor. And um, we're sort of going back and forth on stuff. And we're supposed to go to a play this month, actually. But uh, yeah, yeah. I feel like with graphic novels and stuff, it's so like it's such a in in a way that like plays and poetry and other genres aren't um, like I've had an idea for a graphic novel for years mm -hmm. and I know it has to be done visually. It can't like I do just the images in my head should mm -hmm. be done visually, but you have to find an artist and you have to have that relationship with the artist and you have to have that kind of like collaborative, a finding a person, finding the person who suits your style. I mean, yep. unless you're lucky enough to be able to draw that well, like that's such a different element than just like, oh, I'm writing something that I can just do on my own and submit on my own. My uh, my father-in-law has been self-publishing a comic book now for the past four months and um, he's got four issues out. The fifth issue is about to come out and it's excellent. And he found his uh, art artist and um, his uh, line person, um, Tracer, not Tracer. Oh, my God. That's from the Kevin Smith movie. What do they call that with the line? They do the oh, anchor. Anchor. Yeah. So he found his anchor and his artist all on DeviantArt. Oh, and that's cool. Yeah. One of them is in South America and she's incredible. She works crazy fast. And the other guy is in Italy. And he works super fast and super cheap because the the dollar translates to much more <laughs> in Italy than it does here. So um, it worked out for him. And he's very I mean, the artwork is incredible, but um, I've, I've I it's weird. So like in terms of the comic books that I, I you know, the superhero stuff specifically, I've had four. I call them seasons uh, of a particular superhero comic book from DC in my head for years. And I have it outlined completely in my phone, in my email. Um, and then I have spinoffs outlined entire um, first seasons of those all outlined. Everything is all outlined and then it all culminates into one thing. And then it goes into the other seasons of it. So like, it's weird. Like I, I've had this in my head for so long and I have playlists for all of them. And so I put on these playlists and I hear it and I'm like immediately brought back into that kind of fictional DC world. It's I'm such a nerd with that stuff. And it's not even like I want to write Batman and Superman. It's not even that it's not. I want nothing to do with the Trinity of Wonder Woman, Batman, Superman. It's like all these other characters that I'm just like dying to write about. Yeah. And it kills me. <laughs> Not gonna lie, for me, Batman is not a good. It's not fun to read because of Batman. Batman is fun to read because of the villains, for sure. Like for all sure. the characters around him. 
I think the most the most exciting thing um, to write about Batman is him as a father figure. Now that he has a kid who's his Robin, that's exciting. Like that's interesting. So because he can now be the thing that he never had, mm-hmm. and who's his father figure? It's Alfred. So now he's channeling Alfred things through a Batman lens. That's what's exciting about Batman now, and like mm-hmm. watching him work with the younger bat family and stuff like that's what i get excited about with batman and yeah his villains are none you know you're the best writer in comic books when you get given batman like that's literally kind of like how they they approach it you know what i mean like okay cool like you're literally the best in the world well here's batman and it's like oh the crown jewel no problem yeah cool yeah I mean, the killing joke is absolutely fantastic. So whenever you see Alan Moore's name on a comic book, like you're you're in for a good story. Yeah, he's yeah. he's probably my, um, you know, it's 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 kind of a cliche, but he's like my comic book hero. I have a Watchmen tattoo. Um, I, Watchmen's like the greatest, in my opinion, it's probably the greatest thing ever written. Um, you know, all the Shakespeare and Agatha Christie thrown aside when it comes to Watchmen for me. Um, but yeah, I love Alan Moore. I love everything about it. I love that he's a magician. <laughs> like I love all of his, all I want to do is go to Northampton and run into him. Like if I was to go to England, I'd want to go to Northampton. Like I wouldn't give a shit about going to London. I wouldn't care about going anywhere else. I'd want to go to Northampton and hope that I run into Alan Moore somehow. Just like run through all the grocery stores and be like, he's got to get milk eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I find it such a shame that he hates all of the adaptations of his work. And I don't blame him. Yeah. But yeah. also, what a shame. Um, different note, is there a character you've written or a theme you've explored that you'd want to revisit in the future if you had the opportunity? Uh, yeah, I I would like to um, explore some of the themes in The Vile Thing Recreated again. I think the vile thing recreated serves as a good entry point for my stuff um, because a lot of the stuff that I write takes place in this like fictional upstate New York town of like resting hollow and like all these other surrounding areas and stuff. So I think this is a good way, like a good entry point. Cause then if you read my second collection or my first collection, all of those stories take place there. So that'll kind of, I think that this would give you a good context for like why some of the spooky things happen in some of my other stories. But I definitely think that I could um, revisit a certain character in my novella, Her Infernal Name, which is in my second collection. Um, I really like that character a lot. She scares the shit out of me. Um, yeah, I feel like I could tell another story with her in it for sure. Cool. Cool. Is, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, are there any writers you've worked with in the past, either as part of an anthology or for the purpose of beta reading or editing your work that you'd love to work with again? Yeah. Um, I'm actually doing my first collaboration now um, with a guy named Eddie McNamara. And um, we've got this idea for something that is, it balances horror and true crime. And it, it is just, it's such a great idea and it's very ridiculous. And I'm excited because it's my first collaborative effort, but um, that's something I'm really excited about. I would love to work with um, Todd Keesling on something. You know, I, I'm a big admirer of his. He's a friend of mine. It would be really cool to see his process. Um, I think it could be a lot of fun 
to work with someone whose style is so different than mine. So maybe um, somebody like Charlene Ellsby, I mentioned her before, but like I, you know, she is such a brilliant writer and she writes so different than me. I feel like I can learn a lot from her. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people I'd like to work with um, that, you know, I admire their stuff a lot. Um, Casey Grafont is an author. I was in an anthology with her and um, I feel like people don't talk enough about her stuff because she's fucking awesome um and more people should read her stuff and i think her her style and my style might gel pretty well <clears throat> but yeah i'm definitely getting you being like the nicest drunk of like this person's awesome this person's awesome i could totally do a team effort <laughs> that's kind of why i wanted to ask that question i was like like it's it's always a chance to like i was gonna say fluff up but that's not the right word um it's promote people that you really do enjoy <laughs> reading or working with and like that's why i don't know we, we, we're test driving some new questions on you yeah, i'm sorry you're... i'm sorry no, it's Robert. awesome uh but i'm all about singing other people's praises man like i i'm, I'm a big believer in like you got to celebrate the people you enjoy you know because like I, my buddy lewis is a good example right like he just self-published something called out on a limb and it's really good and i'd love to see him get more attention for it like he's a great guy he's a hell of a writer sweet dude so i'd love to see him get more attention mike tyree you know like these are dudes who are like toiling and self-publishing and like it would be nice to see them get more attention because like i've done that you know like i've done self-publishing and i've been traditionally published so like it would be nice to see opportunities for those guys too um you know Catherine silva is another one i think Catherine silva would be someone who i would want to partner with on something too because she's a genius and she signed a book for me and wrote the funniest slash sweetest thing ever. She wrote uh, to Robert, I love you and I hate you, but I love you more than I hate you. And I was like, cool. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. She's pretty amazing in general. But, uh, you know, these are people that like, we should talk more about, you know, and it's like, it's cool. Like you see the people in the zeitgeist get a lot of attention all the time. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, and it's you, you know who I'm talking about. It's usually the yeah. same people over and over. Um, so it's nice to spread the love around to some of the other people. It's, it's almost like trickle down economics, but working, you know, <laughs> give some attention to people who, you know, should get it along with the people who do get it. It's pump yeah. prime praise is what it is. Like, you know, you it's yeah. Um, but yeah, so the last question we've got before we get into the vile thing we created, mm -hmm. you know, on uh, the subject of singing other people's praises. Yes. Uh, so you've been published, you've had a successful career so far, and are on track for, it appears, a lot more success. Uh, so as you're looking at the literary world and your influences, as you continue to gain notoriety, who would you want your work to be compared to? Oh, Jesus. Um, good God. Yep. <laughs> um, you know, I really, I'm a huge admirer of like, uh, you know, a lot of the writers from the 70s and 80s. So you know, if somebody would take my my work and and put it in the context of like a Blatty or Ira, I've gotten comparisons to Ira Levin, which blows my mind. Like that's insane to me. But like, yeah, you know, the Ira Levin stuff, the P, the William Peter Blatty stuff, um, the McInerney. I'm a huge uh, Jay McInerney guy. Um, you know, I, I that stuff honors me tremendously. So like if 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 I'm ever lucky enough for someone to be like, yeah, his work is reminiscent of and they list one 
to three all three of those guys like holy smokes just hang up the jersey that's it you're done yeah i would uh, do the friendly <laughs> little thing and just disappear from social media forever <laughs> uh, yeah uh but yes the vile thing that we created please uh give us a little bit of insight into like what created uh what inspired the story and then if you could give us a little bit of a sample of of the work and then we'd be willing to continue the conversation yeah. sure um yeah it really came out of uh i was thinking a lot about how relationships change and how relationships evolve between friends and stuff like that and you know i mentioned before my wife and i are child free um we don't plan on changing that anytime soon. But a lot of my friends, once they started popping out kids, it started when they got married. And when they got married, everything became couples night. Everything became a couples night. And so the single friends, myself included, um, were all excluded from everything. And it was weird because we've all known each other since kindergarten. And I found that very difficult to stomach at the time. And then my other friend who was single, uh, he met his wife. And then all of a sudden he started doing the same things. Couples nights, we're all going to get together and watch Game of Thrones reruns. And it's like, was it really that great the first time? Um, but like, it was just very strange. It was just like a very difficult, hard to swallow change for me for a long time. And then the children started coming. And that was really the beginning of the end because and and I've been fortunate enough to see my friends, you know, COVID, obviously it's been a little difficult, but like, you know, now that we're like coming out of that or out of that, whatever you want to say, we still haven't gotten together in the way that we used to. And, you know, we used to go hard and I'm not saying like, let's get blackout drunk and go nuts every night like we used to in our 20s and early 30s and stuff. But like, how about we go out to dinner and you don't have the kids with you or even better. Bring the fucking kids because guess what? They're funny and cute. And like, I think the way kids' minds work is super funny and cool. And I like that. I like being around that creativity, that kind of like unfiltered sweetness that kids bring. Um, but that doesn't happen. And so I was thinking a lot about that stuff a couple of years ago when I started writing this book. And I was just putting that into it. And um, especially in the opening chapters, you can really see sort of my disdain for how these things, how the the rituals of marriage and the rituals of having children put a strain on child-free couples or childless couples, um, regardless of whether you choose to not have children or you can't have children. Um, it's very difficult for people to deal with. And it goes beyond just like the conversation of, well, you don't know what it's like because you don't have kids. Well, may yeah we do know what it's like and that's why we don't have kids like we get it it's hard and that's just a difficulty i don't want to invite um so that's really kind of where it came from and you know i, I again like saying something about society through the lens of dark fiction right it kind of comes back to that idea um because i really wanted to talk about you know child-free couples dealing with a society that puts so much fucking pressure on hey you can squirt out a kid yet you squirt out a kid yet? You're going to commit to 18 plus years, like Kirsten said before, of of supporting a child and you know raising. I'm in New York, man. Like the house that I live in is like 800 grand. Like I can't, you know, I can't like raise a kid. I can't add a kid to that. You know, like I just can't. That's just too goddamn much money. And 
And I don't want to deal with that. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of effort. Like my writing is priority next to my wife. My wife is number one. My writing is number two. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I can, I definitely like the, the sections of it that I've read. I definitely saw that. And I mean, I, I like that there are stories out there that talk about this, this conversation, yeah. at least mm-hmm. like the child free, childless whatever the term you want to use sure being able to have that being able to have that conversation like how friend dynamics change um because it's it definitely changes as as you get older but um if you'd be willing to share a little bit of it up with us by all means the floor is yours thank you um so this comes from the prologue uh the time before this is very literally the the first bit of the book Lola sat in a chair. There was nothing special about the chair other than that it was yellow, metal, and old. She stared, and her mind raced, curious if she was older than the chair, or if the chair was, in fact, older than her. She wore white, a delicate ensemble, soft pants, and a slim-fitting t-shirt. Hi, Lola, Ian said, sitting across from her, emerging as if from a fog. He was handsome, twenties, kind, pale blue eyes. Hello, baby, she said, smiling. Her face was numb. Her entire body was numb, as though her movements and feelings were telegraphed from some deeper, darker place, and her body was following impulses issued forth eons ago. They were alone in the room. The walls were cream-colored. The bed was adorned with a green blanket, white pillow, and yellow comforter, colors that made Lola's skin crawl. How are they treating you in here? Ian asked, placing his hand on her knee. She's out of it most of the time. Another voice said from behind Ian. The form took shape in the fog. Lola's father, Moses, tall, powerful looking. He placed a hand on Ian's shoulder. She'll be all right soon enough. Where am I? Lola asked, her voice airy, distant, and not altogether her own. You're at the Apple Valley Psychiatric Center. Do you know why you're here? Moses asked, his voice low and measured. Lola nodded absently. Memories of a needle piercing into her. Her body going numb the humming sound of a tube being inserted into her. Walking out of the building, a woman robed in black kneeling by the highway with a sign reading, is this a choice or a child, with a blurry image of a shapeless form somewhat resembling a baby on a tray covered in blood and viscous fluid. The image made Lola's skin crawl. In her mind's eye, she swore the fetus on the tray twitched. Visiting hours are just about over, another voice said. Ian stood, leaned down and kissed Lola's cheek, Lola could see an orderly over Ian's shoulder standing in the doorway. I love you, Lola. Darkness in the room. Moonlight beyond barred windows. A cold metal chair. A poorly decorated room. Images of a bloody glob of meat twitching on a silver tray beside surgical equipment. Is this a choice or a child? Syringes filled with liquid. Injections and struggling. The taste of copper in her mouth as she broke the flesh of a young muscular orderly. Her hair becoming unkempt. The smell of her own skin and sweat, shoes without laces, nights without much sleep, shadows dancing on the walls as those same walls seem to inch in slowly, the air in the room growing stale, more syringes, less fighting, giving up, a bed that felt more like a coffin, darkness, deep and lonely darkness. If Lola could, she would scream. I'll stop there. I mean, it sets the scene. Definitely uh, sets the tone of the 
of the novel. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess we've kind of already talked a little bit about the the conversation this book invites is talking about one the impact on uh, couples as they've either chosen to remain child free, childless, um, or as like their old their friends choose to embark on having families of their own with mm -hmm. children. But then the other part of it about is like it talks about just what an absolutely phenomenal undertaking it is to decide to be parents. And I really admire the the willingness to have that conversation mm -hmm. because it's something it's something that we never talk about or like we kind of talk about at the periphery and it never like makes the mainstream uh, side of the conversation or like the conversation in America. Mm. And it, I admire the fact that you, that you decide to take this on in the story, particularly because of how it develops, where it's it initially begins. It appears out of, I guess, spite or frustration. Like the, the question gets posed out of just frustration of like, why has the dynamic changed between us and our friends who have all decided yeah. to have kids? Mm -hmm. And I, I like that it starts with something like that animalistic, I guess. Yes. It's, a, it's a really bad way of phrasing it, but like that kind of animalistic kind of emotion of like, why aren't we included anymore? Mm -hmm. I think there so, is something to be said about a lot of books that talk about parenthood. It's usually, and like the struggles of parenthood, it's usually focused on the struggle to become a parent, right? So it's mm -hmm. the fertility issues. It's the... Uh, the planning of it it's the process mm -hmm. more so than the actual like event of parenthood and mm -hmm. i don't think that there's anything wrong with those stories i think that those are also like talking about the struggles of that is also very important but i really appreciate that this was brought about in a way that kind of has this has this conversation of like the like the intensity of want that it takes mm -hmm. to be a good parent the mm -hmm. idea that like it's just something that you should do mixed with the kind of selfishness of like I mean this happens in work a lot right so if you're I want to take a vacation in June well I can't because they've got kids and that's their summer break they've got kids and that's their summer break but you're childless so you can just like go whenever you don't have to go in June you don't have to do this you have to be here to hold down the fort for everyone else with kids right mm -hmm. so it's kind of having those types of conversations in, to the extent that you were talking about with get out, right? Without mm -hmm. having that like shoved down your face aspect of it. It's a yeah. nice way to like insert those ideas without saying that you're inserting those <laughs> ideas. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, it, and I, I've seen it happen to, you know, in the past with like, you know, in the teaching profession, I, I'm not a person who believes in tenure or the concept of tenure. I think that's nonsense. But uh, I've seen uh, people waitlisted for tenure that are single or that are married and without a child. And the person with a child is given tenure over that individual when they both should be getting it. They give it to the other person and not uh, the child free person. So like that was is something that I've seen in the teaching profession at the very least. And, um, you know, like, oh, yeah, you can work after school. You could do this like you don't have kids. And it's like, well, yeah, I do have a life, though. Like I do have things that I enjoy. Um, but yeah, it, it is a weird situation. And I think saying that like it comes from a, a very animalistic or primal place 
is very true because like I remember my feelings um, when all this was happening were very primal and very like I felt slighted in a way because like I always just want to have a good time like wherever I am I just want to have the best possible time I can with the people that I'm with and I want them to have the best possible time I get that from my dad like I feel like I have to take on this like ringleader I want everybody to have fun kind of thing um, and like that's all I've ever wanted with my friends specifically so for them to like trade felt like a slight trade, like the idea of like the fun that we always had together for a night of eating at Applebee's like with another couple just seems so bizarre to me. And it seemed like such a horrific trade and it called into question my own. And it's stupid to think like this really, because it's not this, it's just a change. It called into question like my own feelings of like adequacy as a friend in providing an experience for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was something that I was thinking about too in writing the book. Like Ian's very reactive compared to his wife, Lola. Lola mm-hmm. is not, she is definitely like the even keel. Uh, my wife is very much like that. Whereas mm-hmm. I'm kind of the fiery, angry Italian of the two of us. Ian is not Italian, but he is pretty fiery. Um, and like, so that that he definitely is a little more me. And I didn't realize that. And I've mentioned this like before, but like I didn't realize I was opening as much of a vein as I did until another author pointed that out to me. And they were like, uh, yeah, this is a lot of you in here. And I was like, shit. <laughs> so I think it's so that interesting up. with that dichotomy, too, of like how things change and stuff and what I like kind of the selfish part of it, right? Like you were saying, like, I'm too selfish or whatever. And I think that's a thing that at least from my perspective as a woman has been told a lot to me of like, how can you be so selfish that you don't want children or like, you'll, you'll be old. Like as you, as someone literally, I had a guy tell me as someone older and wiser than you, that instinct will kick in one day. And I'm like, okay, so you want me to trade my current life. You're saying that at some point I'm going to trade my current life and you're calling me selfish for not wanting to trade in my current life. But if I trade in my current life, then I become the person that's saying, you have to make these concessions for me. You have to do this for me. You have to do that for me because I'm the one that had a child and I have to take care of the little one at home and don't someone think of the children. Like I don't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It's very strange. I I don't get the high and mighty vibe. I, I don't understand like, you know, and, and I had somebody do this. We were talking about, you know, again, like I was on a, a stupidly, stupidly, I went on Facebook and a moron that I went to high school with um, was talking about, and this was like right in the heart of the pandemic, like when people were still doing online learning and stuff and I was teaching online, which by the way, like I loved teaching online, like cool. I don't have to go in every day. Cool. Thanks. Um But like he had this whole stupid ass vibe of like, oh, it's more important for kids to be in school than it is for people to be healthy. And I said to him, I was like, yeah, you're saying that because you don't want to have to stay home and take care of them. You want the free babysitting again. That's what Mm -hmm. you want. That's what you're fucking saying, dude. And he was like, no, you don't have kids. You don't get it. And I was like, motherfucker, I've got 120 kids. I do get it. Like the thing that I've, I don't know. I'm the I'm the exception in that I absolutely despise working from home. Um, I hate it. I don't I won't want to do it again. But the other part of it is that it's like definitely for people that I've seen who, aside from myself and a few others, mm-hmm. 
who are like, I don't want to work from home. People who are like pushing for it is like the higher ups who like, I hate to say this, the very, very much the stereotype and some degree this is true is the folks who are just kind of like, I don't want to be at home with the wife or the kids or whoever. And I'm just like, I actually you... have to have a relationship with my family. Yeah. It's, 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 it's like one of, it's like one of those things that just like, if you didn't want to have to spend a large chunk of your life with them, why did you get married? Why did right. you have kids? Like, was yeah. this out of a societal obligation? If so, you needed to ignore that. Um, like you're, you're spot on. Been... Yeah. yeah, I mean, like that's one of the reasons why it's like I'm single right now because I understand it's like if I wanted to get married and have kids, I wouldn't be a good husband or father. Yeah, and it's like, but see, having that foresight is what so many people do not have. Yeah, like I, you know, and that was something I, I like touched on, I guess, in the book. Like some people got out of it. Like you don't have a kid to save a marriage, or you don't have a kid because it's the next step. Like you have a kid because you want to like give something of yourself to a new life and foster a new life and and create something that is better than you and your wife or your Mm -hmm. partner or whatever. That's the idea. Like you want to better everything. Yeah, Um, There was a a great video I saw recently and it was uh, a therapist talking about the biggest flag of like, if you need, if you experience this as a child, if you heard that as a child, or if you're thinking about having kids and it's your mentality and it's, if I have a kid, I'll finally get the love I need. If I have a kid, this will be my best friend. It'll be my mini me. It'll be whatever. If it's coming from that place of this is for me mm-hmm. rather than this is because I want to like create something and see it thrive. Mm-hmm. It's that's like a big sign that your kid's going to need therapy. Yeah. yeah. And it's, and, it's... and that's something in the book that I, I wanted to mention too. Like they have, you know, Ian's, thinking of in terms of having kids is selfish in the sense that like we're being excluded and I don't want to be excluded anymore. But in their conversations, he does say like, well, you know what, this actually does feel like the natural next adventure for the two of us. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we're in a financial place. We can make it happen. You know, you're going to be not only the coolest mom, but the hottest mom, that's for sure. (laughs) And like, he's a teacher, he's going to get tenure. It's like a whole thing. Like they make a logical decision a rational decision it just of course doesn't work out it all, but it all it all goes to hell yeah yeah because yeah. you know it's sort a horror novel it, it can't go it right. has to yeah yeah but i think that's cool that you kind of put that part in because like the statistics on men and their careers when they have kids versus women when they have kids or even women when they get married and the idea comes up that they will have kids mm-hmm. and what that does to their salary and their career mm-hmm. trajectory is wild so even if it's just like a mention somewhere that he's like this is beneficial for me mm-hmm. i yeah and, again and I think, it goes back to that like idea of putting something that matters in a way that's not yeah frying yeah. pan <laughs> yeah hit hit over the head and I, I think also like the thing about it is is that it's like that discussion of like the logical aspect of it of like this benefits us like we're in a good spot for it it also goes into the thing that i've seen with like some of the older couples that have had kids it's like they've made this conscious choice of like we want to get married we want to have children because this is how we this is how we think we are going to become who we're meant to be Mm -hmm. and i think i think lola even says it's like we are who we're meant to be right now and this advances that and i'm like i love 
having that aspect of the conversation because it talks about like the parents as not just like the the sperm and egg donor of the kid it's mm-hmm. a matter of like we are people who have to embark upon this role uh to to birth and raise the child and yeah. that, that's the part of it that I, I i absolutely loved and then of course you know you know it's all going to go to hell because again it's 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 a it's a horror novel right. and what parenting journey ever goes according to plan like even the even like the last friend i visited like her daughter is her daughter is two years old and like from the outside from the outside everything looked fine and she was just kind of like no, I'm actually going to have to take a step back from my job because she's having health problems or this happened, this happened, this happened. And you find like all the little cracks as soon as you look close because nothing ever goes according to plan. Like my my sister-in-law joked that her wedding her wedding plan had to be called Operation First Bullet because it was it was, it was a saying in the Marines, like no no plan lasts past the first bullet. Like as soon <laughs> as like you hit any sort of like friction or contact, everything's going to go to shit. Mm. And I was like, that's just like parenthood but again ian and lola like they acknowledge it's just like we're people and we're embarking on this journey together and that's the thing i loved about this is that it's like yeah everything goes to shit but it's like they made the conscious decisions like we know that this might go wrong right right so and ian believes that lola he knows that she's strong enough to weather just about anything because she is like she's she is the rock of the mm-hmm. two of them. And she's really like, I wanted to write someone that I would be like, yeah, that's a badass, And that's what yeah. Lola kind of became for me in writing her. Um, and then especially like learning, you know, I've, I've like learning all the things about women of color having children and how mm-hmm. remarkably difficult that is. Like I had no clue. Oh yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. And so like, to me, she's like Superwoman kind of thing. Like she's every kind of like badass maternal primal. And she even kind of like has a moment where she thinks about like the first mother, the first woman kind of thing. And she's like, I can fucking do that. She's like, I'm just as fucking strong. And she's like gnarly and badass. <laughs> and like, yeah, you goddamn right. You can be like women in general. <laughs> like, yeah, you can be the first woman. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you know, like I, I really enjoyed writing her, especially I enjoyed writing Ian as well, but I enjoyed writing Lola a lot more because in my mind, this is very much Lola's story. It is Lola and Ian's story, but it's very much Lola's story because uh, she, you know, the the book is bookended by her in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, And I just I really like her perspective and like her vibe. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's pretty dope. <laughs> I'm kind of curious, like I can talk about parent like all the stories about parenthood and people that I've had these conversations about like for another hour, but just a little <laughs> bit more about you and the writing of this book. Like, how did you when you were looking at like structuring it, did you have like you had the concept, mm-hmm. right? Like you had this idea, but when you're looking at like the process of writing a story, things change. So did you have an outline? Did you like know kind of what the ending was going to be? Did you let Lola and Ian talk to you? Did you structure it around research? Like how, what did that process look like? I knew that I wanted to tell a story from two different perspectives, a husband and a wife. Um, And I knew that I was going to go, I knew I was going to alternate between the two of them based on the chapter. Um, uh, Whichever chapter it was that that you were reading was going to be from a different perspective. 
but I also um, I had everything outlined. I had all of the the major plot points outlined, and I had some sequences interspersed in there, and some of them got moved around. Um, but then the ending specifically is probably the biggest thing that changed to me, like in the writing of it, because the original ending that I had uh, in mind was a lot smaller. It was a a little more. It was there was something to it that looking back at it now just doesn't feel right. But in the time of coming up with it, I was like, yeah, that's, that's good. I like that. But now like, no, this just wouldn't fit for like the larger scheme of things. And there was also, um, you know, so that was something that changed for sure. And then there was, you know, little plot points that would shift over time. There was a, there was a thing that I took out because like my, I, my wife read an early version of this, and there was a point where Ian, um, there was like a, a very cliche, almost like Netflixy subplot that I had in there, and it sucked, and I hated it, and I, it was everything I hate about like these by the numbers type shows that you watch, like you know, I put off watching Yellow Jackets because I was like, this is gonna suck. This is gonna just be like the the water cooler bullshit that everybody gets obsessed with but i like it i do like it but you know what i mean you know what i'm talking about like with the, the yeah. oh a squid game is a good example really not that good but everybody's talking about it um and i didn't want that in this and this plot point nathan just went what you didn't like squid game um, i was more going I, I, off of like it was predictable exactly. it was predictable but i enjoyed it i mean i'm yeah. a sucker for ultra violence but go on no. um, <laughs> this plot point just felt too netflixy for me and my wife kind of pinpointed it when she read it she was like i can see where this is going and this kind of sucks so i was like all right so that's coming out so i pulled that out um so i was happy about that and that was completely thrown to the wayside but the best thing about that is that's been something um i've been able to mine for other work so i was able to take that little subplot out and turn it into two short stories that have both sold and there's like an undercurrent of it in something else that I've played with. So all the things that get left on the cutting room floor, you could find a use for, I guess, later on. Yeah. Everything gets recycled. Yeah. And I think it's, for me, it's that I don't mind it. And I'm also like one of those people that can pretty easily detect what the ending of a story is going to be. That's not whatever but if there's at least an aspect of it that is done it's either that it's predictable and it's done very well or there's an aspect of it that's surprising mm -hmm. because i'm so dubious when people are like oh the ending like really is just so surprising i'm like is it yeah right is it i have that same reaction <laughs> yeah, that's fair i wanted to like going into the the ending of this there's a there's a sequence before um what sets off the ending um, where I, I almost wanted to give you the ending there, even though there was still like 20 or 30 pages left or whatever it was. Um, and that was like sort of my hint as to like, okay, we're going to be going into the end. And this is sort of like their moment. And then the final, you know, uh, denouement or whatever you know, shitty English teacher phrase you want to use um, <laughs> kicks off. Um, but yeah, so like I loved going into the ending of this thing and uh, I was really shocked when it turned out to be how many pages as it was. I didn't think I had that in me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I think like do I didn't I don't know that like my ending feels like a twist. I think it just feels like I don't know. I think it just because if you're reading the whole thing and you're paying attention to all the little things going on and like the things that they allude to, you could probably be like, oh shit, <laughs> like when the, some of those things happen towards the end. But yeah, mm-hmm. I wasn't, I think the only time I've ever really been like shocked by a twist um, in a, in a piece of fiction or whatever um, was maybe in American Psycho when he kills the kid. Like I did not see him actually doing it. Um, and that really kind of was like, oh, we are in darker territory than we already were. <laughs> and we were already in really dark territory um, or even something like um, Cabin at the End of the World. You know, I don't want to like necessarily spoil Cabin at the End of the World. But when a certain character does not make it to the end, I really did not see that coming. Um, and that was really shocking. And I certainly did not see those characters making that choice at the end of that book. And I was like, fuck yeah, <laughs> that's really awesome. So, that's... and that's why that's like my favorite uh, Trembly book. But, you know, I, I just, I don't ever want to like go into something and specifically be like, here's a twist for you kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that could be fun. I, that could be fun to write the, the, the thing that I'm working on with Eddie McNamara does have a, a pretty cool twist in it, but it's not anything that's like, wow you know i think there's also a difference between like a twist and an ending that sticks with you Mm. you know what i mean like whoever the if like if you in like the last three pages kill off somebody and leave me just like empty inside or like not even like kill somebody off but like something happens and i'm just like yeah Uh, sorry this doesn't exactly like translate to audio but yes (laughs) what what the hell just happened yeah (laughs) rather than like you'll never guess who the villain is. Like, I probably will, actually. Yeah. Like, don't don't tease me like that. And I know some people really enjoyed those types of stories, but I think for me, in terms of marketing, I'd much rather be like, the ending will leave you wanting rather than, in a good way, mm-hmm. rather than the ending will, you'll never see it coming. Right. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, by and large, it's like, I, I think I got spoiled early on in my life for, for twist endings because one of the first mystery books I read was, um, and then there were none by Agatha Christie. Yeah. Oh, so everything such a like, good ending. I know, but it's like, that <laughs> spoils you for twist endings for the rest of your life. And it's not a good book to read at the age of 12. <laughs> um, you want to enjoy twist endings for the rest of your life. What, like, are, what are you saying about our childhood, Nate? What are, you, what are you saying? Listen, I don't want to make those statements in a public forum, but you know, whatever, you can make your own conclusions. But I mean, like the, what I was kind of getting to is that it's like I don't sure how I was like this, but uh, the twist ending for me doesn't really have a lot of lore. It's like I don't very rarely in a when I'm reading a book do I actually like try to solve the mystery before the end comes. Mm-hmm. Like I noticed this. Uh, so I don't know if either of you guys have read, but um, I was recently on a vacation in Edinburgh, and. Uh, I picked up a book called The Hunjin Murders, which is a Japanese murder mystery, uh, which is at, at various points very meta, but it it's actually like a locked room mystery. 
and I was just kind of like, I don't want to figure out, like, I call myself thinking this way, like, midway through the book, where it was like, I don't want to try to figure out who the culprit is. I just want to, like, ride the story out as far as it goes. Yeah. And I realized that it's like, I've done that with a lot of different books where it's like, I don't want to figure out who the, I like, yeah, I can play like the guessing game of like, like, what's the twist ending? And it's just like, no, why not just try to see if you can piece the clues together? And then, like, if, your conclusion matches up with the conclusion of the book, then you're fine. If not, like, what's the issue? But I, I like just following the story to its logical conclusion. And if, I'll be honest, I haven't read, uh, I haven't seen, like, how yours, how the vile thing created ends just mm-hmm. yet. But the the idea of, like, a conclusion that pieces everything together, or if you want to have a sequel, like, leaves something open, that's the one that's always going to be most satisfying for me where it's like everything gets wrapped up or at least like makes sense. Maybe not. It's like satisfying, but at least it makes sense with your, with your ending. Um, I think I'm intrigued. I also have not finished it. So mm-hmm. I'm very excited to see the non Netflix, <laughs> the non Netflix version, the non Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. Your ending. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and going back to like Kirsten's point of like, there's a difference between a twist ending and an ending that sticks with you yeah going back to the fisherman mm-hmm. the fisherman is not a twist ending but damn does that stick with you yep i, I still remember <laughs> i still remember like the last sentence and i'm like oh gosh i don't know the endings that make sense when you go back and like think through it again mm-hmm. those are the ones that are always the most satisfying for me yeah so, i would yeah. agree and i think you know i i do like I like an ending that allows you to kind of live in that world, at least in your head for a little while mm-hmm. longer, even once you put the book back on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the fisherman is a good example of a book mm-hmm. that does that. Cause you know, it's a very realistic upstate New York area, but it's also that folded in world. And I, I think like, being able to revisit those places in your head is is key. And that's kind of what I was hoping for with this book is have like, you know, even if it's a, a, you know, hopefully people find it to be a satisfying conclusion that they would want to return and think about it a little bit more later on or, you know, have a, a nice, you know, fictional thought experiment or whatever with the narrative um, moving forward. So I think that's uh, I think that's really all I could ever hope for in writing something is have endings like that, yeah. or even just something that like generates a discussion. Because I remember when we were at um, the event in October, the mm-hmm. uh, Wolf's Bar event in October, and I was telling you about a book that I did not like, but the ending was enough that you like you ended up buying it. If mm-hmm. I remember correctly, you ended up buying that book because it was so like. I feel like there's something to be said about even the books that you like that leave that impression good or bad yeah. it's still like someone's still thinking about that yeah mm-hmm. months later yeah the experience yeah mm-hmm. yeah i feel that way about the hunger games books actually it's like <laughs> say what you will like i i'm not saying i approve the entire ending but mm-hmm. it's an ending that stuck with me and yeah. i keep i keep thinking about whether or not it's good or bad or like whether it could have been fixed or whatnot but it's it's the idea of like a book that that stays with you is always the one that I think I'd always want to come back to or suggest to someone else. Like all those, like they're endings that make sense, but they're not twists and they yeah. stick with you. And I'm like, why, 
does this make such a fucking impact on me in both sense mm-hmm. uh, in you know, both ev- senses yeah i think everybody knows by jordan harper did that too where you were left with that's um one of the last ones he came out with so everybody knows the ending is a choice and it's the choice that is made that sticks rather because it could go either way it, it like that that it could be either choice and then at the end you're like ah oh, this makes sense and i hate it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I, that, I hate everything right now, and it's so good. How dare you? <laughs> that's the odd thing, actually, about like not on like a dark fiction note, but um, to be taught if fortunate by Becky Chambers, it's a sci-fi story. I remember listening to it on audiobook, and it's a very short book, but the ending isn't a twist, but it's one of those ones that sticks with you where. This is going to be an odd spoiler, but I feel like I have to in order to fully explain it. But it's, it's a crew that has embarked on an extraterrestrial uh, scientific research mission. And they go through multiple years and multiple planets. And then at the end of it, they find they've had no communication from Earth in about like 50 years. So like some very long stretch of time where they realize something's gone wrong on Earth. And the ending of it is that they've said we have re-entered cryogenic uh, stasis. So we can wait almost until the end of our lives. We will not wake up until we receive orders from Earth. And the orders can either be, do you want us to keep going to explore this next planet that we've selected that's an equal distance from our position to Earth? Or do you want us to return to Earth? And I remember the line that said, if we died out here with your blessing, we would die as your family. But if we receive no answer, then we would return to Earth. And if the answer is we die out here alone, we would rather die with you. And I'm like, this isn't an ending, but yet I am so entranced by the idea of it. And I'm just like, Becky Chambers, I would... Like, I would give you a hug for traumatizing me. Um... (laughs) because i have no other answer to the story but it's a fantastic ending um my apologies to whoever i just spoiled it for but it's but seriously it's 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 still it's still a worthwhile read if you Mm -hmm. even if it's spoiled but yeah it's oh gosh i hate endings sometimes but i think at this point we have to yeah they're so satisfying to write though i was gonna say uh do you have off of this subject and our very long book tangent i'm sorry um is there anything else about the book that you wanted to talk about any other themes any other aspect of your writing any other things that any other subjects that we that you really wanted to talk about while we're here i just hope that you know people check it out and people enjoy it and uh leave reviews and hopefully um you know you you enjoy this uh spooky uh, pre and postnatal uh, journey through a young couple's hell. And uh, maybe if you do not have children, it forces you to think about some stuff. Um, or if you do have children, it forces you to think about some stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, and if you like it, uh, that's great. And if you don't like it, that's also fine too. I appreciate you checking it out. Paul Tremblay gave it a blurb. Like, what more can you want, people? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that he did. That he did. Everything, every, everything I've heard about it is fantastic, and what I've read is, so far is absolutely fantastic. So oh, I thank you. Really, no, honestly, like 
it's a it's a fantastic story and i want to read more of your work and i will uh but in the meantime thank you very much for coming on the show uh for all those who are listening at home please uh follow robert otone at twitter and instagram uh the book will be out by the time that we air this so um you can get it i'm assuming amazon barnes and noble Mm -hmm. all the major retailers yeah everywhere fine and super shady books are sold (laughs) perfect (laughs) i love that and then also check out anything by spooky house spooky house publishing right yeah spooky house press that's my uh that's my small press we've got a lot of really fun and exciting stuff coming out within the next year uh year and a half two years um a lot of really cool stuff that i'm charged up about excellent excellent and in the meantime please rate and review us on spotify itunes um whatever your preferred podcast app is put your first to your friends um let us know if you have anything that you want to uh publish at darkwaterspodcast at gmail.com uh and please remember to always look beneath the surface thank you very much thanks guys